The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Monday, September 19th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Brits stood. I think we both felt like it was exactly where we wanted to be today. Yes. And we were both in for the long haul, so ready to stay here all night. They stood in line, or online, or as they say, they queued up to honor their queen. I thought by coming at 2 a.m., it was going to be a little bit quieter. I was wrong. Everybody had that in mind. The BBC had the breaking standing in line news. A live tracker of the queue to get inside Westminster Hall shows it is currently nearly five miles long with an estimated wait time of 11, well, it's uh, changing by the moment here, of at least 14 hours. Great Britain loves to queue. They love it so much they tell themselves they're not even in queue. This is not a queue. This is a magical moment we're all sharing together. Members of the queue told the Wall Street Journal, quote, it's the most British thing ever queuing up to see the monarch. That was an 18-year-old named Patty Farrell. This a 57-year-old from London named Gillian St. John. It felt like the English thing to do. That is such an admirable cultural trait. No, not loving standing in lines. That's lemming-like. But the admirable thing is for a culture to have erected a cultural trait around a normally displeasing cultural obligation. What do we have in America is our cultural traits, deep frying everything that's not nailed down, shooting each other a little too much. Okay, to be fair, Americans are sympathetic, like children. We're eager, again, like children, and we're Pretty credulous and open to the claims of charlatans. See where this one's going, huh? Some of America tried at one point to embrace Q. Only wrong kind of Q, real big disaster. Some good cultural traits about Americans. Then again, I am American, so of course I think they're good. But we do believe in the power of the individual to change fate. And we generally celebrate risk-taking, no lopping off the tallest poppies here. But standing in line as an expression of national identity and to be called upon to do it at a time when the very symbol of national identity is in question, very, very clever you Brits. It dovetails into adaptive social cohesion quite nicely. Other cultures that have traits that leave their societies better off, Canadian politeness, Germans being on time, Japanese orderliness, Brazilian self-expression mixed with the suspension of the usual condemnation a Catholic country might exhibit. All of these traits have downsides, but compared to, come on, we're Greek, what are we going to pay our taxes? Or, come on, As an Italian, you expect me to obey traffic laws? I mean, those aren't helping anyone other than the immediate doer. And I also have this to say for the Brits, marrying standing in line with the other less noted national trait of not burglarizing the houses of everyone standing in line, it's really, really a good job. Maybe God couldn't save the last queen, but there is a society that I think has the tools to save itself. On the show today... The late Ken Starr. I've read the obits. I'm not going to use the word great 
before late. But first, I bring you an interview with General Robert Spaulding, a man who has expertise in China that's unquestionable. He was an influential voice within presidential administrations until his worries about the 5G network clashed with business concerns. Spaulding has written an interesting book about a decades-old Chinese treatise called Unrestricted Warfare. But I want to give you some background on the guest before we get into the interview. Spaulding was on the board of We Build the Wall. Yes, the one that got Steve Bannon indicted. I asked him about it. He says he didn't do any work for them. And if the government can prove its case, Bannon should certainly be prosecuted. I left that out of the interview so I could get to a meteor subject that I thought was important. Spaulding is not... A 2020 election denier, as you will hear, but he's not exactly Adam Kinzinger on this issue. So I asked him about it. We went back and forth a bit. Why am I giving you this heads up now? Well, I felt like if we just ended on that, you might think, great, why do I even spend time listening to this guy? Or you might say, as I did, look, this is an agreed upon expert in the field. This was an influential person who served both Republican and Democratic administrations, maybe for good, maybe for ill. This is the quality of advice those administrations are getting. This is the quality of the thinking of at least one expert behind that advice. He did give us insight into what I thought was a fascinating and seemingly important document that I'd not heard of. So add it all up. I hope you'll enjoy this interview, such as it is, with retired Air Force Brigadier General Robert Spaulding on his book, War Without Rules, China's Playbook for Global Domination. In 1999, the United States offered to its military a translation of a Chinese war manual. Unrestricted Warfare was written more than 20 years ago by two colonels in the People's Liberation Army of China. The premise was that a superpower, like the U.S., can't be defeated playing the superpower's game, so construct a new game, new battlefields, weaken superpowers through unconventional means, the banking system, control of the media, technology, natural resources. Air Force officer Robert Spaulding read this in 1999, and to be honest, it seemed to him a little dense, weird, and far-fetched, but he remembered the book. It stuck with him, and almost all of the strategies that that war manual laid out came to pass. He is now a retired brigadier general. Robert Spaulding was China advisor to the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the Obama administration and during the Trump administration. He became senior defense official and defense attache to China and the senior director for strategic planning with the National Security Council. His new book, reflecting on this old Chinese book, is called War Without Rules, China's Playbook for Global Domination. Welcome to the gist, General Spaulding. Thanks. Great to be here. This interesting book that, as I said, stuck with you, what are the basic premises of that book? Well, the premise is that war is politics, um, you know, and I think, you know, we know that um, in the Western tradition, and that's what I was taught. 
that we use military force to achieve a political outcome. Clouds says war is politics by other means. But the real difference here in terms of war without rules is that politics is war. And Mao has a famous quote. He says, politics is uh, war without bloodshed. And what um, what the Chinese, two Chinese colonels that wrote Unrestricted Warfare were saying is that, you know, the end of the Cold War is really going to give us some great opportunities. The um, COCOM, which restricted trade between the Soviet Union and the Western countries was gone. And we were opening up, we were bringing all of these authoritarian regimes into the international order, ostensibly to change them. So globalization was going to give the Chinese Communist Party an opportunity. And then the internet was this new technology that was going to bind things together, bind people and things together, markets. And between globalization and the internet, this ability to take Mao's brand of warfare global in the same way that the United States took uh, the application of force global with the B2, stealth, you know, networks, GPS, um, all of these different technologies that were debuted in 1991 during the first Desert Storm War and really were shown in Kosovo War. These are the things that um, that the Chinese Communist Party were saying. Globalization and the Internet is a way to fight Mao's type of war. Did unrestricted warfare get anything wrong or some of its predictions just didn't come to pass? I, I'm thinking of a couple things, but what do you think? Doctrine is not meant to be dogma, right? It's meant to give you principles that you can use to be successful in a future con conflict. So. Unrestricted warfare. That's one of the things that that I think I you know I tried to convey in War Without Rules. Unrestricted warfare is not a strategy. One of the things that people like to say and, and said prior to the book coming out is that well you know unrestricted warfare is irrelevant. China doesn't really have a grand strategy. Well, that's true. It's not a grand strategy. It is a doctrine. It is it is it is basically taking lessons learned that the Chinese Communist Party had already witnessed and then applying those to create a set of principles that, that they can use to go out and be successful. So um, if everything was correct, then, you know, you approach um, becoming dogmatic, which is not the right way to look at doctrine. You want to take um, and, and, and ultimately, as you do these things, you should be learning and, 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 and basically taking those lessons learned to revise your doctrine as you go forward. Mm -hmm. And the idea of war without rules, it's not that the Chinese will be particularly brutal. It's not that they will violate the Geneva Convention, though at times there are examples of that. It's more about the rules as to how to define the battlefield. And the Chinese, as you interpret this manual, and I think quite fairly, are defining the battlefield as everywhere. There's nothing that's not the battlefield. Right. And what they <laughs> these and that's why it's w without rules. What these two PLA colonels says, why do you follow the rules? Like whose rules are they? Well, they're the rules that they put up, you know, after World War Two. So who set the rules? Well, the United States and its allies and partners and the rules benefit a democratic, you know, liberal uh, set of values that we don't aspire to. So why would we follow follow the rules? So let's join because they're offering to let us join but let's just not follow the rules and let's use the fact that they have rules that they follow uh, to undermine 
the system. What we want to do is create a system that is friendly to authoritarianism, not to liberal democracy. And so if we can do that um, by undermining the current system, which the United States created, then we end up getting all the technology, all of the capability from the United States, but we don't actually have to become, you know, a liberal democracy. Right. So the idea of the United States, the NATO alliance, articulating the rules to this way of thinking that the Chinese colonels interpreted is we have told the world what we won't do. We've given away some intel as to the lines that we at least aspire to. And that is an advantage to the Chinese. How do we see them take advantage of that to this day? Well, it's very easy. They say they're going to follow the rules and they don't. World Trade Organization. We're going to join the World Trade, Trade Organization. Um, these are the things that we're going to sign up to. And then we're just not going to follow them. That That's it. It's it's really as simple as that. Well, how have the rules changed? Uh, China still gets fined by the World Trade Organization. Hacking or state-sponsored computer hacking is still, whether you can punish it or not, against the rules. And no one is saying that. Yes, even the United States, for instance, knows that when it spread Stuxnet, it's not something that they could say, oh yeah, we're behind Stuxnet. We're the one who uh, disabled the Iranian nuclear system. Let's take their uh, their currency as an example. Um, they are part of the basket of currencies at the IMF. They're part of the World Bank. Um, you, you mentioned the World Trade Organization. They have a non-convertible currency. They're the only country in the world that has a non-convertible currency. Everything is based on a freely convertible currency to in order for this free trade regime to work. So saying that they get fined by the World Trade Organization completely just deflects from the fact that they have a system that is unlike any other system in the world. And they're allowed to have this system in spite of the fact that it creates a huge advantage for them. How can the United States or Western countries get them to follow the rules? Uh, I understand the analogy on the battlefield. The answer might be to defeat them with guns, What's the answer on when the battlefield is everywhere? You can't. They're not going to. And so um, what we did with the Soviets is like, hey, guys, you go stand in your corner and we'll be in ours and we'll see which system wins. What we've <laughs> what we've done with the Chinese is like, hey, come on in, guys. You know, um, you can use a refrigerator, you know, use a home, do whatever you want. You know, uh, you're, you're, you're a guest with free run of the place. And, and they're like, OK, we're just going to take everything. And uh, so, you know, the only way that you can actually deal with that kind of adversary is just say, hey, guys, you go do your thing, right? You're Marxist Leninist. You have 75% of your economy as state-owned enterprises. But you can't come and get our technology, talent, and capital because we're a free society with free market enterprise. And, you know, it's not fair. You subsidize your companies. You have a, um, you know, a non-convertible currency. You cheat. You steal. Guess what? You go try to make Marxist-Leninism work without having access to our technology, talent, and capital. By then, we'll start to invest all of that that we've been investing in you for the last 30 years in ourselves. And then let's see how we compete. Let's see uh, which citizens are happier, which are more prosperous, which have more economic opportunity. Today, Chinese have more economic opportunity. The average Chinese uh, person has more economic opportunity than somebody living in the West because they have everything from the West, plus they're subsidized by their own government because that's the social contract that the Chinese Communist Party offers. 
You just shut up about politics and we'll make sure that you have full employment by ensuring that our economy keeps growing by taking from the West to do that. Mm. Let's talk specifically about Taiwan. If Taiwan remains uninvaded and taken over, what will the U.S. have done to make that happen? I think the only way to prevent Taiwan from being invaded by China is to give them nuclear weapons. There is no other way. Nuclear. Yeah, nuclear. The porcupine defense, robust bulwarks and anti-aircraft guns on the island won't do enough? You have such an array of bombs, uh, rockets and missiles on the other side of the strait that you could make Taiwan look like the surface of the moon. So there is no defending Taiwan using, you know, conventional stratagems because for 30 years we've allowed China to build up all the weaponry they need to basically saturate the island and every uh, U.S. military base in the region. So when this happens, it's going to be very violent. It's going to be very fast. And if the Chinese put or if the Taiwanese put up any real resistance whatsoever, it's going to be devastating for the population. There, there is no defending Taiwan in a conventional sense. There is only preventing that war. And to me, the only way you prevent a war with Taiwan um, is to give them nuclear weapons. Well, India has nuclear weapons and China and India still clash on the border. How much of a deterrent is nuclear? They do, but but we're, we're talking about, you know, basically Chinese uh, sitting in the prime minister's, um, you know, house uh, in India versus just having a, a border skirmish over, um, over um, you know, the, the mountainous region. I don't think the Indians have anything to fear about the Chinese invading them. Yeah, they may um, have this border dispute, but it's not going to escalate because the Indians can use their nuclear weapons and, and the Chinese know that. If you give Taiwan nuclear weapons, does Taiwan have to be prepared to use them? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the whole point of, um, of being of nuclear, nuclear deterrence is, is uh, capability and will. And, and do you have the capability to it and do you have the will to do it? And if you don't have the will to do it, then, you know, just because you have the capability doesn't mean anything. So the last I heard uh, you weighing in on the 2020 election before it took place, you expressed a preference for Trump over Biden, though you said that members of the cabinet like Mnuchin were not taking China seriously enough. That's fine in a democracy and especially knowing what you know, you're allowed to have that opinion. But I have a two parter. One is how has the Biden administration been doing? And also as a person committed to the Constitution and democracy, did Trump's election denial and refusing to leave office give you great pause? Um, so I think in, in the Biden administration, I think it suffers from the same challenge that the Trump administration. I've been very clear about this. There's a war going on in the administration. There was during the Trump administration. There is during the Biden administration. And that war really is between the national security imperative with regard to our um, coupling with China and the business and financial interests of the country. And I think they play out um, in, in the political sphere on a daily basis. And I think that's why we can't protect ourselves. In terms of um, the president's actions on January 6th, um, I, you know, what, what I tend to believe is, as I, and I've kind of talked about this before, is I take a step back from the situation and I'm looking at it and I'm saying, okay, is this, is this reflecting a, um, what I see as a nationwide um, misunderstanding and miscomprehension of the U.S. Constitution? 
not just from you know the president and his supporters, but also on the, the left as well. And that is that the states um, retain most of the power, except for those things that the federal government are given the power to, to take care of. So let's go back to um, the contention that you think the election was stolen or maybe that you thought fraud was happening. In reality, the president is chosen um, uh, through the through the state legislatures, right? That, that's how the electoral college works. The vice president has nothing to do with selecting the president other than to be a uh, figurehead, right? To be a, it's a rubber stamp. The, the real, the real um, job is done by the state legislatures and it's done by the people of the states. They send their electors. Um, this is not a federal thing. This is a state thing. And it, it's really um, uh, you know, uh, very important for people to understand how the president is chosen. The misguided nature of what happened on January 6th is the protest should have been in the state capitals where they thought that the vote had been um, uh, was unfair, not in Washington, D.C. I think on both sides, that just shows you that Washington, D.C. is um, essentially centralizing power in a way that, quite frankly, the founders were concerned about. And I think, you know, the fact that, that, that there was a protest in Washington, D.C. just kind of verifies that. In terms of um, President Trump himself, I think uh, he has a very basic understanding of things. He, he, he didn't spend 30 years like I did studying of war and national security and all those things. So the things that, that I talk about, he probably doesn't, you know, he's not steeped in. And I wouldn't expect him to be. I think, though, that one basic knowledge of, hey, the Washington, D.C. is not really the place that we need to be um, protesting the decision of the president. It ought to be in the state capitals. And we ought to. And in that case, I do think there is a valid concern that the um, the voting pro procedures in those states that allowed for massive mail in ballots because of the coronavirus is an extension, as I've said, in war without rules of unrestricted warfare. Right. So you've articulated I think a pretty good explanation for why the pressure campaign should never have centered on Mike Pence and that was doomed to fail because he really had no power to change anything. But I do think fundamentally, if the problem of war without rules is lawlessness, that no matter what our quibbles or even critiques of um, and, you know, legitimate critiques, though they may be, of the imperfections of the state voting system. Overall, there's such a lack of evidence for the basic premise that the election was stolen. Um, I would think someone who adheres to laws would have to stand up and say that that's the case. That right there, I mean, just that statement, the election is stolen, is in itself a, a, a takes you on a line of thinking. Why not just say, hey, there are things that happened in 2020 that were that have been declared illegal. You know, the some of these things have been declared illegal. OK, that that's a we can explore that. We don't have to say hey, the election was stolen because when you do that, you say, oh, somebody said the election was stolen. They're wearing a tinfoil hat. And this gets to the same point that I had throughout this conversation, which is we have to be able to have critical thought. And what we use is these straw man arguments to shut down critical thought rather than actually thinking about the real problems that we have. 
make whatever claims you want, but some of the things that happened during 2020 have been ruled illegal. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm trying. I'm trying not to do that. I'm trying to. Well, I'm all. I'm trying not to get uh, in a cul-de-sac of uh, both words and thinking about this. But fundamentally, uh, the basic premise of the voters' intent was not properly recorded. Uh, there's just such a dearth of evidence about that. You got to say that. Well, it doesn't matter. That's the thing. So I'll, I'll use Hillary Clinton's thing about Benghazi. What does it matter? Joe Biden's the president. Let's move on. Let's move on. I mean, quite frankly, that's why I don't watch the media anymore, because I'm tired of talking about it. Let's let's move on. What we have to do as Americans is strive every single day for a more perfect union. That's what's in our Constitution. That's what we need to be doing. And so that that is what I am concerned about. That's what I care about every single day. Let's make our country the best country it can be. And we cannot do that if we close our eyes and close our mouths to things that we think are not correct. Yeah, which is why I'm calling out uh, Donald Trump for what I think is he's doing contravening the Constitution. Which is you're, you're, you're totally right to do as an American. That's, that's what I love about being an American. You can say whatever you want. It, you know, ultimately, though- I'm not saying that it's my right to say it. I'm saying that I am right in saying it. My assessment is correct. <laughs> I'm allowed to say my assessment is correct. And he is incorrect when he says that the election was stolen or whatever equivalent verbiage you want to use to convey the thought that, you know, Joe Biden shouldn't be president. Great. So, so you're right. You know, you can be right and other people can be right. You know, we can all be right in our own kind of, in our own kind of way. What we don't want is a country where the only way that you can be right is if you if everybody agrees with what you believe you're, what is right, that's the thing. That's the problem. We can't have a country where somebody designates this is the right way to think and everybody else has to think that way. And unfortunately, this is what politics is about. It's about you coming over to my side, not me coming over to your side. Yeah, yeah. And so the last thing I'll just say about that is I'm not a huge believer in postmodernism. And I think that there are just things that are true. Not everything. You know, many things are open to interpretation. But, you know, if uh, I drop a bomb on a village, that village is going to burn. That's just the truth. And it's not open to interpretation. So I also think you can't really um, base logic or base decisions if fundamentally you have a 180 degree let's call it opinion or conception of things that are fundamentally true. And this is one of the big ones. Yeah, I, I agree. So, you know, um, gravity, 32 feet per second per second squared, orbital mechanics, you know, we, we you know, the, the, the problem is um, when anything touches humanity, whether it's uh, society or economics or politics, uh, and if, where the affairs of the heart are concerned, trying to um, create a science out of that. You know, Keynes is a good example. He wanted to he wanted to distill the scientific principles of economics. Hogwash, not possible. When humans are involved, emotions are involved, psychology is involved. And I think in this case, the Chinese Communist Party gets it right because they leverage the tools of you know understanding that humanity is frail. And we can take advantage of those frailties by appealing to, you know, their baser natures, which is, you know, primarily fear and greed. 
Robert Spaulding is a retired general, is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and his latest book is War Without Rules, China's Playbook for Global Domination. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And now the spiel. Last week, the news noted the passing of a 76-year-old who, for a moment, was the most consequential man in American culture. Ken Starr, a former federal judge who had roles in two presidential impeachments, died today of complications from a surgery at a Houston hospital. If you remember the name Ken Starr, it is because of his role as special prosecutor investigating Whitewater. You may not recall any of the details of Whitewater. Starr declined to prosecute anyone over it. But his investigation did reveal some details that would mm, poleaxe the administration and America itself. Bill Clinton did engage in a sexual act with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Starr then went on to be president of Baylor University. More on that in a minute. And then he presided over a bizarro world version of his own CV. In 2016, he was hired by Donald Trump to defend him in an impeachment proceeding before Congress. And he did so casting aspersions on prior whirlwinds that he himself reaped. The acrimony surrounding Iran-Contra and then the impeachment and the trial and President Clinton's acquittal by this body led inexorably to the end of the independent counsel era. Enough was enough. Most in media had enough of Starr at the time, but a few columnists dispensed with the general protocol of obituary writing that the dead not be spoken ill of. It was Eugene Robinson in the Washington Post who wrote, The life of this one-time pillar of the conservative legal establishment is evidence that age and time do not always confer wisdom and that it isn't always pleasant to live in a world of one's own creation. Robinson is a polite man. Charlie Pierce of Esquire doesn't have that reputation. His piece was headlined, Ken Starr was a political hack who did some embarrassing crap. These weren't eulogies, they were malogies. And it is clear that the vitriol was a holdover from Starr's, I'm not going to say star turn, let's say heel turn, when he went from Inspector Javert over Clinton to Saul Goodman for Trump. But it is his presidency of Baylor University that I would argue was actually worse, morally speaking. Baylor is a deeply religious school. It didn't allow dancing until 1996, which was after Lewinsky's first sexual encounter with Bill Clinton. Starr saw an opportunity to raise Baylor's profile through sports. So he raised hundreds of millions of dollars for a new football stadium, new athletic facilities, and a high-paid football and basketball coach. And then, well, I will quote Sports Illustrated. Beller is accused of failing to respond to reports of rape and or sexual assault filed by at least six female students from 2009 to 2016. Two former football players have been convicted of rape. The regents of the university removed Starr from his post for failure to address the concerns of women at Baylor. According to the reporting in the New York Times, while Starr did urge Title IX compliance, he also proclaimed the school would remain true to its orthodox Christian values, which is why one rape victim worried that her status would break the rule against premarital sex was told it was better not to report the rape. 
Starr very awkwardly changed his answer in a TV interview three times on the advice of an off-screen crisis manager when asked if he saw an email from a student's subject line, I was raped at Baylor. The answers went from, I may have seen it, to, I have no recollection, to, I have no recollection, but I think I would have remembered if I saw it. As Baylor president, Starr had direct oversight of the behavior and discipline of thousands of students. His actions could have prevented or at least addressed dozens of cases of trauma-inducing misconduct. As special counsel, however, Starr had but one target. Starr did mistreat Monica Lewinsky. Starr did create tumult, but I'm not sure lives were destroyed. They were inconvenienced, marred, and upended, but really destroyed? Starr was hired, it should also be noted, as special prosecutor to be the kind of partisan Old Testament prophet that he was. Writing in the Baltimore Sun, Jacques Germond gave a rundown of the panel that put Starr in place. There was David Santilli, conservative ally of Senator Jesse Helms. The panel acted after being urged to do so by 10 conservative members of the House of Representatives, led by Dan Burton of Indiana. And also on the panel, Floyd Brown, Brown is head of a conservative group called Citizens United. Washington, or the Gingrich Republicans at the time, got in star exactly who they wanted. His victim, Bill Clinton, actually did commit misdeeds. Monica Lewinsky did not deserve what she went through, but that was nothing compared to the lives ruined by Starr's non-feasance at Baylor. Let us remember Ken Starr for Whitewater, but also realize that it was his later role as college president that probably created the greater net harm in the world. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca waited in a queue for 13 hours to get the title COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.